you should be on. Yeah, these birds, they have no respect for your property, do they? I've dealt with that too. Not exactly like that, but I'm sure we all have. But this week, we are dealing with John chapter 20. Still covering the Easter story. We could cover it year round. We're going to start reading verse 1. It says, The first day of the week cometh Mary Magdalene early, when it was yet dark under the sepulcher, and seeth the stone taken away from the sepulcher. And she runneth and cometh to Simon Peter, and to the other disciples whom Jesus loved, and said unto them, They have taken away the Lord out of the sepulcher, and we not know where they laid him. Peter therefore went forth, and the other disciple, and came to the sepulcher. So they ran both together. And the other disciples did outrun Peter and came first to the sepulcher, and he stooping down and looking in saw the linen clothes laying, yet went not in. Then cometh Simon Peter following him, and went into the sepulcher, and seeth the linen clothes lie, and the napkin that was about his head not lying within the linen clothes, but wrapped together in a place by itself. Then went in also to the other disciple, which came unto first to the sepulcher, and saw and believed. For as they knew not the scripture, that he must rise again from the dead. Then the disciples went away again unto their own home, but Mary stood without at the sepulcher weeping. As she wept, she stooped down and looked into the sepulcher, and seeth two angels in white sitting, one at the head, the other at the feet, where the body of Jesus had lain. And they said unto her, Woman, why weepest thou? She said unto them, Because they have taken away my Lord, and I don't know where they laid him. And when she said that, she turned herself back and saw Jesus standing and knew not that it was Jesus. Jesus said unto her, Woman, why weepest thou? Whom seekest thou? She, supposing him to be the gardener, said unto him, Sir, if thou have borne him hence, tell me where thou laid him, and I will take him away. Jesus saith unto her, Mary, she turned herself and saith unto him, Rabboni, which is to say, Master. Jesus saith unto her, Touch me not, for I am not ascended to my father, but go to my brethren, and say unto them, I ascended to my father, and your father, and to my God, and your God. Mary Magdalene came and told the disciples that she had seen the Lord, and that she had spoken these, and that he had spoken those things unto her. Now, if the jo- Gospel of John was an ordinary biography, there would be no chapter 20. I like reading biographies, and I'm sure some of you have as well. And, and if you notice, most of them always conclude with the death and burial of the subject. It starts out by saying, this person was born on such and such a, such a day, lived in this town, did all these great things, and then they died. But any biography you read, when the person dies, you never, near, never read about them rising up again from the dead. And the fact that John continued his account and shared the excitement of the resurrection is proof that Jesus is not like any other man. He's indeed the Son of God. The resurrection is an essential part of the gospel message and a key doctrine in the Christian faith. It proves that Jesus is the Son of God and that he, that his atoning work on the cross has been completed and is effective. The empty tomb and, and the empty cross are God's receipts telling us that the debt has been paid. Jesus Christ is not only Savior, but he's the sanctifier and the intercessor And one day he shall return as judge. From the very beginning, the enemies of the Lord tried to deny 
the historic fact of the resurrection. The Jewish leaders claim that the Lord's body had been stolen from the tomb. The statement is absurd. For if the body was stolen by his followers, how did they do it? The tomb was guarded by Roman soldiers and the stone sealed by an official Roman seal. Furthermore, his disciples did not believe that he was to be raised from the dead. It was the enemies who remembered his words. They certainly would have not taken the body. The last thing they wanted was anyone believing that Jesus indeed had risen from the dead. If his friends could not steal his body and his enemies would not, then who took it? Perhaps the disciples had visions of the risen Lord and interpreted them as evidences for the, res for the resurrection. But they did not expect to see him. And that is not the, the land of psychological preparation from which hallucinations are made. And how could more than 500 people have the same hallucination at the same time? Did the followers of our Lord perhaps go to the wrong tomb? That's unlikely. They carefully watched where he was buried that day. They loved the master and were not likely to get confused about his resting place. In fact, the women approached the tomb. They were worried about who would roll away that heavy stone. Yeah. Not too many women can pick up a real heavy stone. I mean, not a lot of guys can either. They were very worried about it. So, so they, they were acquainted with the situation. <clears throat> As to the foolish argument that Jesus did not die but only swooned and was later re revived, little need to be said. It was proved by many witnesses that Jesus was dead when his body was taken from the cross. Later, he was seen, seen alive by dependable witnesses. The only logical conclusion is that he kept his promise and arose from the dead. But the glorious truth of the resurrection was not understood immediately by even his closest followers. It gradually dawned on these grieving people that their master was not dead but alive. And what a difference it made when the full realization of his resurrection took a hold of him. For Mary Magdalene, it meant moving from tears to joy. For the ten disciples, it meant going from fear to courage. And for Thomas, it meant moving from doubt to assurance. With, with Mary, the emphasis is on love. With ten, the emphasis is on hope. With Thomas... The emphasis is on faith. As we consider Mary Magdalene's experience that morning, we can see three stages in her comprehension of the truth of the resurrection. Peter and John are also part of this experience. Mary Magdalene and several other women agreed to go to the tomb early on the first day of the week so that they might show their love for Christ and completing the burial preparations. Joseph of Arimathea and Nicodemus had been forced by circumstances to prepare his body hastily, and the women wanted to finish the task. Their great concern was how to get into the tomb. I mean, perhaps the Roman soldiers would take pity on them and give them a hand. What they did not know was that an earthquake had occurred, and the stone had been rolled back by an angel. 
it seemed that Mary Magdalene went ahead of the other women to get to the tomb first. When she saw the stone rolled away from the door of the tomb, she concluded that somebody had broken into the tomb and stole the body. And we may criticize Mary for jumping to conclusions, but when you consider the circumstances, it's difficult to see how she would have reached any other conclusion. It was still dark. She was alone, and like any other followers of Jesus, she did not believe that he would return from the dead. She ran to give the news to Peter and John, who must have been living together at a place known to the other believers. Perhaps it was the upper room where they had met Jesus. Mary's use of the pronoun we is interesting, for it included the other women who at that moment were discovering that Jesus was alive. The women left the tomb and carried the angel's messages to the other disciples. It is significant that the the first witnesses of the resurrection of Christ were believing women. Among the Jews in that day, the testimony of a woman was not held in high regard. It's uh, been said that it, by certain rabbis, it's better that the words of the law be burned than to be delivered to a woman. But these Christian women had a greater message than that of the law, for they knew that their Savior was alive. Mary's faith was not extinguished. It was only eclipsed. The light was still there, but it was covered. Peter and John were in the same spiritual condition, but soon all three of them would move out of the shadows and into the light. John 20 and 3 suggests that Peter started off first to run to the tomb, but John 20 and 4 reports that John got there first. Perhaps John was younger and in better physical condition. Perhaps John was just a better runner. It's tempting to spiritualize this foot race and relate it to Isaiah 40 and 31 and Hebrews 12, 1 through 2. For example, example like when a believer is out of fellowship with the Lord, it's difficult to run the race of faith. However, both men deserve credit for having the courage to run into enemy territory, not knowing what lay before them. The whole thing could have been a clever trap to catch the disciples. When John arrived at the tomb, he cautiously remained outside and looked in. Perhaps he wanted Peter to be with him when he went into the burial chamber. What did John see? The the grave clothes lying on the stone shelf without any evidence of, of disturbance. But the grave clothes were empty. They lay there like an empty cocoon, still retaining the shape of Jesus' body. Peter arrived and, and impulsively went into the tomb, just as we would expect him to do. He also saw the linen clothes lying there empty and the cloth for the head carefully rolled and lying by itself. If somebody were to rob the grave, they wouldn't carefully unwrap the corpse and then leave grave clothes neatly behind. I'm sure they would leave a big mess and get out of there as fast as they could. I don't know why anybody would want to rob a grave anyway, but there's people out there like that. In fact, with the presence of the spices and the folds of clothes, it would be almost impossible to unwrap a corpse without damaging the wrappings. The only way those linen clothes could have be left in that condition would be if Jesus passed through them as if he rose from the dead. John, of course, entered the tomb and looked at the evidence he saw and believed. And when he wrote his account, he used three different Greek words for seeing. 
In John 20 and 5, the verb simply means to glance, to look in. In John 20 and 6, the word means to carefully observe. The word saw in John 20 and 8 means to perceive with intelligent comprehension. Their resurrection faith was now dawning on them. It seems incredible that the followers of Jesus did not expect him to come out of the tomb alive. After all, he told them many times that he would be raised from the dead. Early in his ministry, he said, destroy this temple, and in three days, I will raise it up. After his resurrection, the disciples remembered that he had said this. However, his enemies remembered it too. Jesus compared himself to Jonah, and not Jonah would. And on two occasions, clearly announced his resurrection after three days. On Thursday... His last week of ministry, he again promised to be raised up and meet them in Galilee. What kind of faith did Peter and John have at that stage in their spiritual experience? They had faith based on evidence. They could see the grave clothes. They knew that the body was not there. However, as good as evidence is to convince the mind, it can never change the life. Those of us who live centuries later cannot examine the evidence. For the material evidence, the tomb, the grave clothes, is no longer there for us to inspect. Well, maybe the tomb is. But we have the record of the Word of God, and that record is true. In fact, it is the faith in the Word that the Lord really wants to cultivate in in His disciples and us. Peter made it clear that the Word of God, not personal experiences, should be a basis of our faith. The disciples had only the Old Testament scriptures. So that is what is referred to in John 20 and 9. The early church used the Old Testament to prove both Jews and Gentiles that that Jesus is the Christ. That he died for sinners and that he arose again. The Gospels include in that which he rose again the third day according to the scriptures in 1 Corinthians 15 and 4. What scriptures did Paul and John have in mind? Paul saw the resurrection in Psalm 2 and 7, and he talks about it again in Acts, and Peter saw it in Psalm 16 and 8, and Peter also referred to Psalm 110 and 1, the statement, he shall prolong his days, and Isaiah 53 and 10 is also interpreted as a prediction of Christ's resurrection. Jesus himself used the prophet Jonah to illustrate his own death burial and resurrection and this would include the three days part of the message paul saw in the feast of first fruits a picture of the resurrection and again this would include the third day some people see the resurrection and the third day in hosea 6 and 2 after his resurrection our lord did not reveal himself to everyone but only to selected witnesses who would share the good news with others This witness is now found in Scripture in the New Testament. And both the Old and New Testament agree on this witness. The law, the Psalms, the prophets, and the apostles together bear witness that Jesus Christ is alive. Peter and John saw the evidence and believed. Later, the Holy Ghost confirmed their faith through the Old Testament Scriptures. And that evening, they would meet the Master personally. Faith that was eclipsed 
Now has started to dawn, and the light will get brighter. When I think of Mary Magdalene lingering alone in the garden, I recall Proverbs 8 and 17. I love them that love me, and those that seek me early shall find me. Mary loved her Lord and came early to the garden to express that love. Peter and John had gone home by that time that Mary got back to the tomb. So they did not convey to her what conclusion they had reached from the evidence they had examined. Mary still thought that Jesus was dead. Another verse comes to mind in Psalm 30 and 5. Weeping may endure for the night, but what comes in the morning? Joy. Mary's weeping was the loud lamentation so characteristic of Jewish people when they express their sorrow. There is certainly nothing wrong with some sincere sorrow because God made us to shed tears. And weeping is good therapy for broken hearts. The sorrow of the Christian, however, must be different from the hopeless sorrow of the world. Because we have been born again unto a living hope by the resurrection of Jesus Christ from the dead. We weep not because our believing loved ones have gone to heaven, but because they've left us and we miss them. When Mary looked into the sepulcher, she saw two men in white. Their position at either end of the shelf where the body had been lying makes us think of the cherubim on the mercy seat. It is as though God is saying there is now a mercy, a new mercy seat. Mary apparently was not disturbed at seeing these men, and there is no evidence that she knew they were angels. The brief conversation neither dried her tears nor quieted her mind. She was determined to find the body of Jesus. Why did Mary turn back and not continue her conversation with the two strangers? Did she hear a sound behind her? Or did the angels stand and recognize the presence of the Lord? Perhaps both of these speculations are true, or neither is true. She was certain that the Lord's body was not in the tomb, so why linger there any longer? Why did she not recognize the one for whom she was earnestly searching? Jesus may have been deliberately concealing himself from her, as he would later do when he walked with the Emmaus disciples that's found in the book of Luke. It was still early and perhaps dark in that part of the garden. Her eyes were probably blinded by her tears as well. Jesus asked her the same question that the angels had asked. Why are you weeping? How tragic that she was weeping when she could have been praising. Had she realized that her Lord was alive, then, then he had it unto her, whom are you seeking? He had asked the mob the same question in the garden back in John 18. It's encouraging to us to know that Jesus knows all about our sorrows. The Savior knew that Mary's heart was broken and that her mind was confused. He did not rebuke her. Tenderly, he revealed himself to her. All he had to do was speak, to her, speak her name, and Mary immediately recognized him. His sheep shall recognize and hear his voice, and he calls them by name, as found in John 10 and 3. Apparently, Mary had turned away from Jesus, for when he spoke her name, she had to turn back and look at him again. What a blessed surprise it was to see the face of her beloved master. All she could say was, 
Rabboni, which means my master and my teacher. The title Rabboni is used only one other place in the Gospels. That's in Mark 10 and 51. In the Greek text, Lord is Rabboni. Rabbi and Rabboni were equivalent terms of respect. In later years, the Jews recognized three levels of teacher. Rab, which is the lowest. Rabbi, which is in the middle. And Rabboni, which is the highest. Mary not only spoke to him, but she grasped his feet and held to him. This was a natural gesture. Now that she had found him, she did not want to lose him. She and the other believers still had a great deal to learn about his new state of glory. They still wanted to relate to him as they had done during the years of his ministry before the cross. Jesus permitted the other women to hold his feet, and he did not forbid them. Why did he say to Mary, do not cling to me? One reason was that she would see him again because he had not yet ascended to his father. He remained on earth for 40 days after his resurrection and often appeared to the believers to teach them spiritual truths. Mary had no need to panic. This was not her last and final meeting with the Lord. A second reason is that she had a job to do, to go tell his brethren that he was alive and would, would ascend to the Father. He is not ashamed to call them brethren. I will declare thy name unto my brethren, as Psalm 22 and 22 says. He has called his own servants and friends in John 15. But now he calls them brethren. This meant that they shared his resurrection power and glory. Some feel that Jesus did not return to the Father on that morning and that that was the ascension he was referring to. But no other New Testament passage corroborates this interpretation. For that matter, he had no blood to present. He had presented that on the cross when he was made sin for us. In his resurrection glory, Jesus was flesh and bones, not flesh and blood. The resurrection itself was proof that the work of the redemption had been completed. What more could he do? Our Lord never used the phrases, our Father or our God. His relationship to the, the Father was different from that of the disciples. And he was careful to make that distinction. We say our Father, our God, because all believers belong to the same family and have an equal standing with God. He, rem he reminded Mary and the other believers that, that God was their father and that he would be with the father in heaven after his ascension. In the upper room message, he had taught them that he would refer to, return to the father so that the spirit might come to them. Though it was the same Jesus, only in a, it was only in a glorified body and it wasn't quite the same relationship. We must be careful not to relate to Christ after the flesh, as found in 1 Corinthians. That is, to relate to him as though he were still in a state of humiliation. He is today the exalted Son of God in glory, and we must honor him as such. The juvenile familiarity that some people display in public when they testify, pray, or sing only reveals that they have little understanding of Paul's words in 2 Corinthians 5 and 16. When John was with Jesus at the table... He leaned against his bosom. But when John saw Jesus on the Isle of Patmos, he fell at his feet as if he was dead. It would have been selfish and disobedient for Mary to have clung to Jesus and to kept him to herself. She arose and went to share the good news that she had seen him alive. 
Mark reports that these believers were mourning and weeping and that they would not believe her. And Jesus turned her sorrow into joy, though, through all that. If they had believed, their sorrow would have also been turned into joy. Unbelief has a deadening effect on people. No wonder God warns us against an evil heart of unbelief in Hebrews 3 and 12. Mary not only shared the fact of his resurrection that she had seen him personally, but she also reported the words that he had spoken to her. Again, we see the importance of the word of God. Mary could not transfer her experience over to them, but she could share the word, and it's the word that generates faith. The living Christ shared his living word. It's good to have faith that is based on solid evidence. But the evidence should lead us to the Word, and the Word should lead us to the Savior. And it's one thing to accept the doctrine and defend it. It's something else to have a personal relationship with that living Lord. Peter and John believed that Jesus was alive, but it was not until after that evening that they met the risen Christ in person along with the other disciples. Jesus appeared to Peter sometime during the afternoon. And remember, evidence that does not lead to, to experience is nothing but dead dogma. And that key faith is in the Word of God. And I'm looking forward to hearing the rest of the Word of God from Brother Corson. Amen. If you have your Bibles open, let's drop down to John 20 and go into verse 19. Then the same day at evening, being the first day of the week when the doors were shut, where the disciples were assembled for fear of the Jews, notice the doors are shut, they're locked, came Jesus and stood in the midst and saith unto them, Peace be unto you. He walked through the wall. And when he had so said, he showed unto them his hands and his side. Then were the disciples glad when they saw the Lord. He was not a spirit. He had a body. But he could go through the wall. Verse 24. But Thomas, one of the twelve, called Didymus, was not with them when Jesus came. The other disciples therefore said unto him, We have seen the Lord. But he said unto them, Except I shall see in his hands the print of the nails, and put my finger into the print of the nails, and thrust my hand into his side, I will not believe. And after eight days again, the disciples were within and Thomas with them. Then came Jesus, the doors being shut, and stood in the midst and said, Peace be unto you. Not shame, shame, Thomas. Peace be unto you. I'm here to relieve your doubt. Then saith he to Thomas, Reach hither thy finger and behold my hands. Reach hither thy hand and thrust it into my side. God is telling Thomas, Put your hand inside me. Okay, we're not putting our hand inside of any typical person. Put your hand inside me. Thrust it into my side. Be not faithless, but believing. Thomas answered, said unto him, My Lord and my God. Jesus said unto him, Thomas, because thou hast seen me, thou hast believed. Blessed are they that have not seen and yet have believed. Thank you. You can be seated. This had to be one of the moments outside of the day of Pentecost that gave those disciples the shot in the arm that it would take to get them out into the world proclaiming the message. Because now they knew for a fact, not only can this guy walk on water, not only can he make food appear out of thin air, he can conquer death. 
And we're not just talking about laying on a bed and wheezing and dying. We're talking about a body that was practically broken in half, laid in a tomb. He was beaten and marred beyond recognition. But on the third day, he came out and did not look ugly. He was in a glorified body. He had conquered death and conquered it greatly. And they were knowing now for a fact that if that happened to him, it's going to happen to us. When we die, death is not the end. We will return. We will be resurrected. It doesn't matter what we face at death. Greater is he that is in us. But ladies and gentlemen, if you've had questions about the resurrection, you're not alone. Because this is what happened in the church. They began to realize this resurrection wasn't happening quickly. Why? Peter sums it up best in 2 Peter chapter 3, verse 4. You're saying, where is the promise of His coming? For since the fathers fell asleep, all things continue as they were from the beginning of the creation. As years went by, as centuries went by, they were dying and they were not resurrecting. The men that knew Jesus were dying and they were not resurrecting. The men that sat at the feet of the disciples were dying and they were not resurrecting. But they just weren't dying, folks. They were being thrown out into coliseums and ate by animals. And here come the pagans. That body got ate. How's it going to get resurrected? Here come the pagans. Not only did that animal eat that Christian, right after it ate that Christian, we ate the animal. How's that body going to get resurrected? This is all documented in the writings of the early church fathers. Then they went to the sepulcher. Because let me explain to you what happened. The Bible says Jesus was put in a new tomb. Tombs were used and reused. They went in there. They grabbed the body. We fuss over cremation. Listen to this. They took the body, scraped all the skin off, took the bones, put them in a jar, wrote the name on it, put it in a cave. The pagan, how's that going to be resurrected? These people that were Christians began to see death as a consuming thing that was hungry and would never be full. And it looked like we were never going to win this battle. The psalmist sums it up really well. Psalms 49, 14. Like sheep, they are laid in the grave. Death shall feed on them. If you look at the early artwork, death is presented as a monster, gobbling. There are churches all through Europe where they have images of death, and it's actually eating the bodies. When you go, you know, You can embalm yourself if you want. I've been in the funeral home business. That just prolongs the inevitable. They drain the blood. They put in the fluid. It messes with your organs. And it makes you pretty for presentation. And it holds off the rotting for a while. But mark my words, you're going to rot. You can say, well, cremation's wrong. You're going to rot one way or the other. You can burn in a house. Your dust is going to be in the wind. You can die at sea and get ate by animals. And everybody's like, what's going to happen? But let me tell you something. My God is greater. 
Supposedly, the oldest book in the Bible is the book of Job, written even before possibly Moses wrote the first five books of the Bible. And this is what Job says in Job 19. Let's look at this step by step. For I know that my Redeemer liveth. Now, we are past the resurrection of Christ. I want to know right now, does anybody in here know that your Redeemer liveth? I know my Redeemer liveth, and that He shall stand at the latter day upon the earth. How do you believe that He's coming back? Listen to the next verse. And though after my skin worms destroy this body, yet, somebody shout yet, in my flesh shall I see God. In other words, I don't care if I'm dust in the wind. I don't care if worms and maggots are in this carcass. When my living Redeemer comes back, I'm getting back into this body and I'm going to see Him with my eyes. Ladies and gentlemen, resurrection is going to happen. Whom I shall see for myself, my eyes shall behold and not another Though my reins be consumed within me. That last part simply means I am consumed with the thought of this resurrection. I want it to happen and I want it to happen now. Job may be the oldest book in the Bible. Job may have actually lived in the early days of Genesis. And in the early days of Genesis, some scholars say this isn't talking about resurrection. I just have a couple words for them. They're stupid. Because if you read that, it sounds like a rotten corpse coming back to life. This idea of resurrection has been around for a long time. And let me tell you why it's been around. Because we look at death as a punishment, but God did not look at it as a punishment in the beginning. He said we will guard the tree of life so that they don't eat off of that and get stuck forever on this earth. Death is our way out. And Jesus said, first the seed has to die before it can become the plant that it's supposed to be. Ladies and gentlemen, we're all going to die one of these days, but I come to tell somebody, you're not going to lay in that ground forever. You're not going to be decomposed forever. There's a trumpet going to sound, and the dead in Christ will, 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 will rise and meet him in the air. And I agree with Job. I will see him with my eyes. Who's Job sound like? Thomas, I got to see it. I got to see it. Peace be unto you. Come here, Thomas. Stick your hand in me. Death is not the end. Here's the questions. If you read Augustine's City of God, it's a book worth reading. When you get deep into it, he lists all the questions that the pagans attack Christians with. They wanted to know, What's the size of the body going to be? Some of y'all fat. Some of y'all skinny. What's the size going to be? What about these conjoined twins? Two people in one. What are they going to be like? Babies. Even in the city of God, written somewhere in the third or fourth century, they were asking, what about the aborted babies? What are they going to be like in the resurrection? 
What about the babies that didn't even live to come out of the womb? What are they going to be like in the resurrection? You're going to have genitalia in the resurrection? You're going to be male and female? If you do, why are you going to have genitalia if you're not reproducing in heaven? What's it going to be like in the resurrection? Why do you need a body? And this is what the pagans say. It gets constipated. It stinks. It burps. As he said earlier, so I'm going to say it, it poops. Most of us are more embarrassed of our body than we're proud of it. Watch a woman get ready before she leaves the house. Why? Because she don't want to be embarrassed of that body. Men, after we're married and the romance is, is gone, you know, that, that new thing's wore off, we don't care what they think. We'll walk out with our belly button coming out of our button. We don't care. Bodies have to, they, they get ugly, they get dandruff, they get bald. And the pagans, the pagans are like, why do you need that body? Then came Gnosticism. Gnosticism said everything in the flesh is bad. It's wrong. Gnosticism got into the church and gave birth to doceticism, which began to teach that Jesus really wasn't a human. He pretended. It was, a, it was a facade. It was an illusion. He really wasn't human. He really didn't die. He really didn't suffer. But let me tell you what Thomas learned that day. He died and he rose again. It was not an illusion, the death of Christ. It was real. He didn't pretend to be human. He was human. He went through everything we went through. And he overcome and he conquered. And he said, if this same spirit that be also inside of you, you are going to come up out of that ground. It doesn't matter. So therefore, they begin to try to figure out how we're going to deal with this. I think I hope it worked. Is there a piece of art you can show? These are angels. This is in a church in Italy. I don't know if you can see this, but there's body parts coming out of the fish and the monsters. That's their interpretation of the resurrection. They believe if you got ate by a fish, you coming out of that fish. Of course, after all these years, that fish is dead. Something ate that fish, and something ate that fish, and something ate that fish, and something ate that fish. But they're trying to wrap their brain about because they're trying to tell people nothing is going to stop the resurrection. Nothing is going to stop the resurrection. We've had missionaries that have been cannibalized. But nothing is going to stop the resurrection. Not even a big old bottle of Pepto-Bithmol. Nothing will stop it. I sat in a hospital with a lady who could not afford her son's burial. He was in an accident, brain dead. The doctors were coming in that day to unhook him from life support. He would be dead. And for almost two hours, hour or two at least... She wanted to know, if I cremate him, is he going to hell? I said, no. Whereby my church says it's got to be embalmed. I said, embalming is just as unnatural as cremation. Embalming didn't catch on to the United States until the Civil War. Because they got tired of those soldiers laying out in the field stinking. And a guy came in, knew how to embalm, and that's how it all kicked off and got started. What about the people that die in a house fire? What about people that die at sea? Did you know, look it up, on Mount Everest, everybody that dies up there stays up there. Yes, 
Look up Sleeping Beauty. She died in the 90s and still looks like she's asleep today, perfectly preserved. She laid down, went to sleep, and everybody that climbs Mount Everest has to walk by her. And they've taken pictures of her, and she just looks like she's taking a nap. They can take you to bodies of people up there that's been up there since the 1920s. Some of the first people that we at least know by record that went up Mount Everest. If any of those people were born again and ready, somebody's going to be on Everest one day and some dead dude's going to wake up. Do you really believe this is going to happen? I believe it's going to happen. Now, I'm not up here saying pre, mid, or post. I'm just saying there's going to be a resurrection. The dead is going to rise. And I don't care how you died, you're going to come back. I don't care what you faced in life. Greater is he that is in me than he that's in the world. Well, I'm afraid to die. Death is a very emotional thing. I don't care if you're ready to go or not. Death is emotional. What's it going to feel like? What's it going to be like? How am I going to make it without them? Death is emotional. And the metaphor has already been given today. And Jesus brought it up, and it's the perfect metaphor. He compared his death to being eight. He compared his death to that whale swallowing Jonah. What did the passage say in Psalms? Death feeds on them. You're sailing along in life, happy-go-lucky, enjoying your family, enjoying your time, and all of a sudden, death rears up like a whale and just gulps you out of the sea of life. When you went to the doctor that day, you weren't expecting bad news, but you got it. You thought that headache was just a headache. Ends up, had a brain aneurysm. I know people that were sitting at the breakfast table with their spouse, and they looked at them funny. They said, I don't feel good. And then they just dropped dead. When death comes, you will not stop it. And that's what Jesus said. He said, like Jonah, I am going to have to go into the belly of the earth. And like it or not, whether you're buried like normal or you're cremated, or you die some other way, death is coming. But what's so great about us? We can die with assurance that this is not it. Now here's the great thing about the Jonah analogy. When Jonah is swallowed, he's still having communion with God. There's a whole chapter where Jonah's describing how he's down at the bottom of the mountains, at the gates of the earth. He's right there at death. Some scholars think he may have even died, but something stayed alive. You want to know why? Because not only are you body, you're also a soul. And even though your body may be in a grave, your soul's going to go somewhere and it's going to be with God. You're appointed to die and then the judgment and then you're going to go to God. But you know what? One of these days, we're coming back and we're going to get that body and we're going to be exactly what God wanted us to be in the very beginning 
That's why Jesus said, don't touch me because I've not yet been to the Father. Well, where you been? I'll tell you where I've been. There's this place called paradise. It's not heaven, but it's where the people went and waited to go to heaven until my blood was shed. And I went down there and let death know I'm here to conquer. I'm here to conquer everything you do and let you know that now I'm in charge. And that's why when he came back, he said, now I have all power in heaven and in earth. He was calling people out of the grave, but the greatest miracle he ever did was when he put himself in the grave and brought himself back out. That's why the disciples could look at those Roman soldiers and say, feed us to the lions. We know that our God's in charge. Burn us at the stake. We know our God's in charge. Throw us in the pit. We know our God is in charge. We should be the ones on the earth that's not afraid to die. We should not be afraid of death. My brother Corsi, I'm nervous. Nervous doesn't mean you're afraid. Right now, we live in a youth culture. I get sick and tired of seeing grandmas trying to look like teenagers. I don't want to see your skinny, bony, veiny legs. I am so glad that my grandmother didn't go around in these weird old tights. I'm glad that my grandmother looked like a grandmother. You know why you're doing that? I don't want to look old. You don't want to look like you're ready to die. You're running from the reaper. I don't run from the reaper. I tell the reaper to bring it. Because you can't touch this. You can't touch this till God says. And then just as God says you can touch it, one day he's going to say, now give it back. We live in this youth culture. It's all about sex and youth. Right now, in our world, the identity of the world all revolves around sex. That's why when they come out as gay, lesbian, or whatever, everybody's like, party! Yay! It's all about sex. And they're going to bring Freud back and say that now we got to get our children all about sex. Let me tell you what life's all about. Life is all about pleasing God and worshiping Him. Life is about the journey between birth and the grave. And you can run to your cosmetic surgeon and you can say, oh, it's Maybelline. And you can wear your heels and you can put on your colored hair. And you men can go work out until you got muscles coming out of your earlobes. But one day we are all going to die. And when I die, I don't care if I'm fit. I don't care if I'm fat. I only care that I'm ready to meet my God. He just, he just died. He was healthy. Have you ever said that? That goes to show you, being healthy is not a guarantee you're going to live long. Huh? I knew a husband that every time his wife got on Slim Fast, he's like, I just can't resist her when she's on the Slim Fast. But it's not going to do anything to prolong her life. 
we're all going to die. I want to die knowing that I am ready to meet the Lord. This is what Augustine wrote. Augustine, in response to the pagans in the city of God, he said, this is what, this is what I believe. They will be of the same age, the same prime of life, which Christ, as we know, had reached. Augustine taught, he says, I believe when you look at the way Jesus was when he passed, he's setting the example. Jesus died in a body that was in the early 30s. Therefore, I believe that's the way we're going to be. We're not going to be old, but we're not going to be children. He also believed that no baby will be resurrected. They will all be resurrected to be in that same area of life that Christ was in when he did his death and resurrection. Maybe. Makes sense to me. I just want to be there. I just want to be there. He also said it doesn't matter. He said, I don't care if some people get resurrected fat. And some get resurrected skinny. He said, you may be fat, but you will be symmetrical. <laughs> so I guess round's a good shape. <laughs> this is what he taught. This is back in the 300s. He said, some people may be taller. Some people may be shorter. And he said, I also believe that we will have genitalia. He said, because I believe Adam and Eve had that. And he says, I'll tell you right now, a man and woman can have that and still not be perverts full of lust. He says, because in the resurrection, a woman is truly going to be a woman. And a man will truly become a man. See, because back in the days, they all hung out and read Aristotle. And Aristotle believed in what we pretty much would call reincarnation. You first start out as a man. If you don't do good as a man, you come back as a woman. Instantly, women are failures. According to Aristotle. Aristotle taught that you can't teach women certain things because their brain's not as developed as a man. This stuff was in the world when Jesus walked the earth. Because Aristotle goes back to the times of Alexander the Great, and Alexander the Great is before the time of Christ. This stuff was in the world. But who did Jesus seek out? Both men and women. And in John chapter 20, as is already read, the first evangelist of the resurrection was a woman. Where a man wouldn't step up, she would. Ladies and gentlemen, I'm here to tell you something. When the resurrection takes place, I don't believe we're going to be some type of weird alien figure that you might see in a sci-fi program. And I don't believe we're going to float around on a cloud. I believe heaven is a real place and there's going to be a new earth and we're going to have jobs and duties to perform. And we will come back. You think you feel good now when the Holy Ghost gets a hold of you? You're going to come back and feel like you have never felt before. And you will beam the holiness of God. God in ways you can't fathom. This is what Jonah said in chapter 2, verse 6. I went down to the bottoms of the mountain. The earth with her bars was about me forever. Yet hast thou brought up my life from corruption. 
Oh, Lord, my God. What does that mean? You brought me up from corruption. Four days, and they said, Lazarus stinks. Three days in the acids of a whale's stomach. Jonah wasn't pretty. But the moment he came out of that mouth, God restored him. Because if he'd have went to Nineveh looking like the walking dead, repent. That's how some of them preachers in Kentucky looked when I was a kid. Repent. They wouldn't have listened to him. But the moment he came out of that well, God restored him. He said, you have restored my corruption. What does it say about the body of Christ? You will not allow me to see corruption. The body of Christ did not go through the same rotting and things that most humans would go through. Because he was different. He was more than just a man. So here's the thing. Your grandpa, they used to preach the gospel. That maybe he's been laying out there for well over 100 years. Don't you worry about him. Them preachers and saints that we never met in our life, whose graves have been long gone and forgotten, who are nothing now but just dust and chips of bone in the earth, God knows where every one of them is. Because he told them in the Old Testament, I got your name on the palm of my hand. We may not call them names like we used to. There might be some Seymours out there. There might be some, who knows what kind of names that you used to see that you don't see anymore. But God remembers every one of them. He knows where they're at. And when He calls them, they're coming out. Isaiah said it best. He said He's going to turn to the east, and the east is going to give them up. He's going to turn to the west, and the west is going to give them up. He's going to turn north and south, and north and south is going to give them up. But probably the greatest example or metaphor we have in the Bible is when Ezekiel was picked up by the hair of his head and put in a valley full of dry, dusty bones. And the Lord asked him a question. Can these bones live? Well, what I got to do, God, because I don't know what's going to happen. Prophesy. Prophesy to the wind and tell it to blow. Prophesy to the bones. Tell them to come together. And the Bible says they begin to come together, each bone to the bone it should. And before you knew it, a mighty army stood up. I'm telling you, folks one of these days there's going to be a resurrection and people that haven't stepped on this earth in hundreds of years are going to walk the earth and saying victory in Jesus my savior forever what we believed was just as real now as it was then so as you look around because I feel the same way I stood at the casket of a minister once who I had a lot of trust and faith in, and I don't put a lot of trust and faith in people very easily. And I stood there next to another minister who was, I think, related to him. We're standing there looking at what's in that casket, and we're talking about memories and stuff. And I said, he, he's not going to be able to be replaced. I said, and now somebody's got to step up and try to take his place, and that's hard. And what we're seeing now is a time, a time on earth to where we're getting very doubtful that people are going to stand up and start taking their place. But I'm here to tell you something. Have faith. God's got an army. And there's people in East Liverpool, Calcutta, all around. They don't even, they don't even know he's calling, but they're getting ready to find out. So as you think more about death and think more about the future, be rest, 
assured in this, Jesus got up, you're going to get up too. Amen. Amen. Let's lift our hands and thank him for resurrection. Thank God. Wasn't that wonderful? Praise God. Praise the Lord.